Today on the From the Heart podcast presented by the First Bank Center for Family-Owned Businesses, it's just an honor for me to have my dear friend, someone I've known for many years, served in different capacities uh, alongside her and just watched her serve in the community for many years. Um, Mrs. Martha Daniel. Martha, as you know, or you will know at the end of this interview, is one of the more inspiring people you'll ever meet. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit about her uh, from her bio. So my eyes are going to go off the camera for a minute, but I'm just going to, I want the audience to really know who Martha is as we get into this conversation. Uh, my goal as I do these interviews on the podcast is to find people who are inspiring. And there's no doubt today we have, we've, we've accomplished that. So a little bit about Martha Daniel. For about the last 35 years or so, she's been a technologist, a communicator, and a team builder. Her sights have always been set on tackling high-impact solutions tied to complex problems. From the beginning of her career, Martha has understood that she can't solve big problems alone. So she became an expert at finding and leading the right teams of people to help accomplish her goals. She serves, this is where it gets really, really good. You're gonna be amazed when you hear some of the things that Martha and her company have been doing. She served as a cryptologist in the US Navy, wrote for the White House blog, and built a nationally recognized cybersecurity business. All of these experiences have shaped her, her view that no matter what the size of the risk, she can find a solution to reduce it. In 1992, she founded Information Management Resources, we'll refer to that now as IMRI, now one of the industry front runners in cybersecurity, information technology, program management and engineering services for federal and commercial businesses. Some of IMRI's federal and international clients have included the US Navy, US Army, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense. Some of their commercial clients have included companies like Boeing, Lockheed, Booz Allen, Hamilton, International Paper, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, and many, many more. Cytelix is a division of RMI, IMR, IMRI, and their goal is to bring complete visibility, continuous awareness, and cyber analytics to businesses looking to protect themselves from cyber threats. We know that's a big issue uh, as time goes on. Over the last decade and, and more recently, there have been a lot of news. I think all of us listening and watching today have examples of some cybersecurity threats that you're aware of. The Cytelix division has received many awards, including the 2018 Gold Stevie Award as the most innovative tech company of the year, and the 2017 Washington Technology Most Innovative Company Award. Martha's been part of such study groups as the Presidential National Infrastructure Advisory Council. She has received many honors and awards, and she won't tell you about these, but I've done some research, including the 2020 Family Owned Business of the Year Award, which is near and dear to my heart, as most of you know the 2018 Woman of Coast, the 2018 Top 100 Most Influential Persons in Orange County, the 2016 SBA Small, Person, Small Business Person of the Year, the 2015 ESGR Patriot Award, the 2014 Paskey's Foundation Leader of Integrity Award. That was near my heart as well. I was fortunate to be honored a couple of years ago by the Paskey's Foundation and now sit on their board actually. The 2014 Presidential Award honored by the White House as Veteran Woman Leader Champion of Change and was also inducted in 2018 into the Black Business Leaders Hall of Fame. If that's not enough, but wait, there's more. She's also an ordained pastor and serves at Christ Our Redeemer Church in Irvine, California. So with all of that, Martha, um, we could end now and people will be going, wow, but let's get it started. And let's just talk about 
Um, first of all, thank you for joining me this morning. It's an honor to get this time with you. Thanks for having me. You've been a, a mentor of mine. You've been a, a leader and a mentor to many who I know. And I've seen you serve in the community. I've seen you serve through your organization, have been at awards programs with you and for you. I'd love to just find out a little bit uh, from you. When I look at someone like you, who's had just this tremendous career, these tremendous accolades, as we just talked about in the, in the, in the intro, let's go back to how it started. I mean, we always say, let's go back to your childhood, but in this case, let's go back to your I'd love to hear, because I don't know this, early mentors or leaders who influenced you, that guided you, and, and then we're going to just dive wherever we want to go from there. Well, you know, um, and thank you for, for the opportunity today. And, 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 and I usually start out when, when you ask me, where did it start and yeah. how did it start? I go back to childhood because... Uh, I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I was raised by uh, two wonderful parents, and my mother was a Mississippi sharecropper's daughter. My father was a factory worker. We lived in the projects initially until they saved enough money to buy a home. And their dream, uh, the American dream, was to have their home and educate their children. And so that was uh, the starting point. I was, I'm the youngest of five children. And as my mother, I was different, <laughs> okay? You probably could imagine that. I, no, I, I'm not gonna say anything. I, you are, I, you're, you're I was, different was, for sure. I you're was different from the rest. I always had an opinion about something. But as it moved through life, one of the things is that going through the, the South, through all of the civil rights movements, through all of the challenges of segregation that we experienced, uh, the eyesight of the uh, of pure, you know, injustices and segregation, you know, I experienced, you know. And so when we talk about who was the foundation and my mentor, it was my mother. Mm -hmm. My mother always said to me, baby, it will get better. You just get educated. It will get better. Trust me. And I believe that. And so she did everything from working many different jobs. I got myself into every kind of organization there was in school and we couldn't afford those things, but she made sure I stayed in them. So my foundation came from my mother who made sure I understood I can be anything I want to be. And then during my high school uh, days, uh, if you remember, I, I, well, I'm going to age myself, but it was in the six, 68 and 69. I graduated from high school in 1969 in the city of Memphis. And, you know, that was during the time when we were having the civil rights movements and Dr. King was marching with the garbage workers. And, and so our parents couldn't go out and do those marches. So I was there. I did the sit-ins. I, I, I went and it was all about expressing the dissatisfaction of, of, of segregation. So from that, that was the leading point of realizing that I'm not going to let anybody turn me around. That's one of my speeches I do, uh, Ed, when I talk, is that no matter what was in front of visible, you have to look beyond that to realize that there can be other things that can happen. So that was my mother's influence and my father's influence. And so obviously, uh, from that point, they were big mentors. Uh, I did uh, go into the service. I uh, went in as the first female, I mean, for my family to ever go to service. But I say I was different. My mother looked at me and thought I had lost my mind. Um, 
<laughs> but I had not. I chose to go into the Navy, moved into cryptology there. And when I first integrated the colleges in the city of Memphis for our uh, technology college back in 1970, I was told that I couldn't do computer science because my aptitude and my testing was were not up to par, understanding that we had substandard education in Memphis anyways. But, but I, I refused to accept that. And so as my battle started right there, and it was more of, I'm going to do this. So of course I forced the system to allow me to do it. And I made straight A's. And then out of that, I couldn't get a job in Memphis. So when I joined the military, I wanted to go into technology, which was cryptology. So that's how I got there. And so from that, uh, it, the story goes on. But mentoring started early as a child, watching and knowing that I could do and being told and lifted up by my mother that I was smart and I could do it. And so that was where it came. I'm guessing you've had a lot of no told in your life that you can't do things, obviously, from what you just shared. And you just busted down the, every one of those doors. And that probably inspires you and motivates you to do more when someone tells you you can't do something. Can you talk about, you, you've shared in other settings that where I've heard you speak before about a, 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 an experience with Dr. King. This is, uh, we're, we're in Black History Month right now, the month that we're, we're doing this interview. Um, but that's a relevant conversation regardless of where we are on the calendar, obviously. Talk about when you came to Memphis and your experience there. I just love this story. Yeah, it, it was beautiful because we were high school students and I was going to Booker T. Washington High School, which was in the center of, of, of Memphis. And um, of course, um, Dr. King would speak at night and there were different uh, uh, marches that were, that were going on with the garbage strikes. And so we as kids, they would let us out of school sometimes at one and two o'clock so that we could go and march because if our parents did, they would lose their jobs. So we would go out and we would march. And I was in the first march uh, that Dr. King did in the city of Memphis because the second one, you know, he had been assassinated. So in the first march, as we walked and we sang, and one of my favorite songs is, Ain't gonna let nobody turn you around. And that's what I use it, but I talk about, you know, the strengthening. So watching and listening at that time. And unfortunately, there were people that planned to have that march turn into something negative. And so they pushed us all back down the street. And I remember having to run inside of Claiborne Temper Temple and and we ran in there and then we had to get home because they threw a curfew on the city and and so I remember walking. I didn't live in that neighborhood that I went to school in, but we walked for almost three hours to get home. And I remember my mother saying, was so fearful. She never wanted me to do this. Mm -hmm. she never wanted me to march, but she was so fearful that something had happened. But after that, then the next time they had to march, I was in the last march, which was the one that they brought everybody back. That was after Dr. King had been assassinated so that we could have a peaceful march in Memphis. But we had some very terrible times. And so the kids would do sitting in restaurants just so we could go. We were, I remember going to the back of restaurants, and I mean, we couldn't go through the front door. I remember seeing the red lines down the wall that said colored and white and the dirtiest water fountains was on one side. I remember having not been able to go to the zoo until the day that they cleaned the zoo. So all of those things were all part, but I never took hatred. 
it was one of those things that I knew that if I could get engaged in some form of fashion of making a change, things would be better. And so those are some of my experiences. I love that. I, as you're talking, I'm picturing you as this child in Memphis in an area that's predominantly black and, and your influence of your mother and Martin Luther King and everything else there to today you're talking to us from a beautiful office in Orange County, California. And there's this just this story but of you know a high school child in the 60s to this amazingly powerful executive faith-driven woman here in 2023. I, I just... I'm sad that we only have an hour because I think that we can <laughs> chapters of your life and just tell your story and inspire so many people. Talk a little bit about any, anybody else that was an influence on you early on, maybe in your business life. How? Because so, you know, yeah, well, going to the business life, um, there were several uh, influencing people there. I had one uh, lady that I looked up to, uh, Betty Lamar. She was a an executive at digital, uh, uh, and she was a real executive. I mean, I was growing up in my career and I, I'm coming out and I'm, I'm working at a variety of companies. And there was this lady who was running the entire Western um, region of, of, of debt computers. And so uh, she was quite influential and I met her and she was very one that kind of guided my career in, in a different way. And then I had um, a mentor that um, that that I worked that worked um, that I worked for for several years. His name was Mitchell Jolson, and he was one that kind of pushed my career in many different directions. Um, and it was it, it turned out to be a, a you know a relationship that went on for several years. And uh, and then I began to gravitate a little bit differently because some of our views were not aligned. I'm very religious based. And, sure. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that began to change because money wasn't my total motivator. I had a lot of integrity. I had a lot of things that I wanted to have happen to be uh, uplifting and upright and very people oriented. And so that became a definition of who I became. And then sometimes in life, and I share this, that you may have people that you're around and when their views and their vision is not aligned to your, your alignment and to who you are, it's okay to be, depart. And you don't have to just depart because I'm a lady of integrity, I'm a lady of faith, and that was important to me. So he was an influential for several years in my career. And then from that point, after that, it's been more of the women in Orange County. I tell you, I was told in 1992 when I started my company that there is no way you would be successful in Orange County. There's no way. There's no African-Americans there. There's no way, lady, you're going to start a business in Orange County, California and be successful. <laughs> and now it's 30 years later. So we well, that know goes back to my that. point of you being told you can't do something and so you do. <laughs> there are certain people, Martha Daniel one, if you want them to do something, tell them they can't. So... Yeah, what drew you to Orange County? So, so I was I after I came out of service, um, you know, I I moved into Orange County in 1976, and and then from there, you know, uh, I worked for IBM in the 80s. I worked for Arco downtown, and and I, you know, we lived we lived out uh, in the Inland Empire, but eventually I did all of my working here, and so finally moved uh, into Orange County in the 80s, moved back into Orange County in the 80s, and. 
became involved in the community from my uh, escalation. I became the CIO of a bank here in Irvine. And as I began to work in the community, it was just interesting that uh, Dr. Judy Rosner was one of my mentors. Um, Gloria Zigner was one of my mentors. Ruth Coe, who on Orange Coast Magazine, were my mentors. And they met me and they said, who you are? We, we love you. So they began to roll me out and incorporate me into the uh, county. I wanted to be engaged. And I started working, doing the Chalk Follies. I was a singer and a little dancer there. I did that for so many years. And so then and I joined the March of Dimes and, and just became very active in the community. And what I think, and I'm going to share this with you because I think it's a very important point about life from what I share with you from my beginnings. When you have no chips on your shoulders and you allow humanity to be part of your life. And so in meeting these women, they began to, they had never had a lot of interaction with African-American women. So there were some teaching moments, there were some fun moments mm -hmm. and there were no chips. They loved me, I loved them. I said, oh, you don't want to say that or you want to do that. And, you know, and so we began to grow. And as a result of that, my whole career here has been wonderful throughout the county of Orange County. And there were very few African-American women that I had to mentor in here. And it was mostly the women in Orange County that grew me, it adopted me, and rolled me out. I love that. I've got uh, a, a backstory of my own life. My mom, Elaine Hart, passed away in 2017. Her career uh, when she went into the workforce in the late 70s was at, at UC Irvine. They had a Women's Opportunity Center. And she was, I think, one of either the second or the third director of that center and helped to do a lot of fundraising on campus at UCI to build a building for the Women's Opportunity Center. And their focus was providing opportunities and education and training for women who, I won't even say going back into the workforce, were really entering the workforce for the first time. So I wouldn't be surprised if your paths crossed at some point or another at an event or with some of the mutual friends of Jane Hart. I'm sure if she were still alive today, she she probably has a Martha Daniel story or two. I would imagine. So yeah, you so know, now, there was one there was one other lady that um, was so interested. I actually had dinner with her the other night, and we go back from we were trying to recall when we first met. And when I first when they first announced that I had uh, started a business here in Orange County, her name is Irene Kinoshita. And she was in a uh, had a technology business. And I get this phone call from this lady that said, I just need to meet you. I need to have somebody that we can relate. And she was the only other technology company I knew. She ran over to Irvine and we sat down and we began to encourage each other too through our careers and through our company growth. And so it's amazing what relationships last forever. I just had dinner with her the other night because she sold her business and, and we were sitting down talking, well, how many years was it when we met? I said, oh, it's been 30. <laughs> yeah, you can, <laughs> so go, you can go back and do the math, right? I, yeah, so these are all women that have been influenced. Yeah. So you've been influenced by many great women and, and men probably as well as you've alluded to a little yes. bit there. You get asked, I get asked, those of us who have been doing what we've been doing for a number of years get opportunities to mentor others. I'm curious, when you see a young person, black, white, female, male, regardless, and they come to you and they seek your advice, or you start to feel like, you know, this is someone I could really mentor, 
is there something in that person that you see more often than not that makes you kind of want to think, wow, I could really, yeah, if you ask me to mentor you, I will most of the time. But what do you see in young people today that that you really grab onto and think, wow, that's someone that I'd really like to help out? Is there anything that, that is in your life, whether it's inside the company or in the community, your church, wherever, where you just think, yeah, this is oh. what you're <laughs> I get asked a lot to mentor. And by many, many different women, all nationalities, all ethnicity, uh, even several men I get, uh, you know, that are uh, entrepreneurs that ask for a leadership and um, and and mentorship. And what drives me uh, when they ask, I have a couple of questions that I ask them. And those questions are generally about, what do you want out of life? Okay. Yeah. And that's a loaded question because it tells a lot about the character of the person. And so then I, the second question I ask is that, how passionate are you about what you do? Okay, because those are the drivers that are going to make a difference to in mentorship. And then I ask them the third question is, how do you define mentorship? Hmm. What are your expectations? Yeah. And so when we get through those three questions, it would have defined a lot about where this person is in their level of mentorship, because mentorship happens at multiple different levels. And so if they're early in mentorship, that may be more motivation, more encouragement, more uh, instruction on what you need to do to get there. If you're looking at mentorship and you're further along into it and you've started that and you're looking for more of, uh, of encouragement, I, I, I'm struggling through some things and I need some advice from a standpoint of a business acumen or, or knowledge to, to keep me going. And then some of it can be emotional. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling with my, 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 the leveling of my time. How do you manage your family, your kids, your life, and your spiritual part of that? So it tells me a lot. So that's, those are the things that I look for. Yeah. And as I listen to that person and from those things, it gives me a level of how much of time I can dedicate to that person and where I can benefit them in where they're asking for their mentorship. Because a lot of times people don't know what they're what they wanting from mentorship. Right. And those why these questions are important for me to find out where they are in that question that they ask. Yeah, sometimes my the mentors I've had in my life, uh, Dr. Ken Blanchard comes to mind for me. He's one who I've known for only six or seven years, but I've known of him for 40 years because I read The One Minute Manager and other books he's written. But when I had the good fortune of meeting him, I've never asked Ken, will you be my mentor? It just kind of sort of happened. And, um, you know, that's in my case, oftentimes it hasn't been a, a conversation of will you mentor me, but just, you know, Mike Trueblood, who was my predecessor at Cal State Fullerton at the Center for Free right. that I ran. He was just the guy who had the job before me, but we became friends and instantly became a mentor. I don't, I don't think I've ever actually asked anyone, will you be my mentor? It's just, just kind of happened. Um, well, you mentioned him because, and what, what that triggered another person that was very influential in my life because most of his teachings and guidance, he was my counselor. His name was Vance Caesar. I don't know if you ever run into Vance before in the community. Vance, uh, for many years, I think earlier in my career with the company, he sat on my advisory board, but he was also, he taught a lot from uh, uh, from Ken Blanchard, you know, he, that was his whole 
everything about and, and that whole teaching and that loving of you know of, of guidance through that and Vance was very influential in the emotional side for me and helping me understand how to find the balance and who I was I used to only identify myself he would say how are you doing when he first met me and in two minutes I'm doing fine and then I talked about my business and one of the things that he as a coach and a counselor he had to help me understand that Martha Daniel was Martha Daniel and I am all I was I am all I yeah. and you are two separate people mm -hmm. uh, one is an it and one is a her and and yeah. so he brought tears to my eyes in two seconds and this man I said well who are you I when I first met him because he asked some questions like what I ask now in my mentorship and I, and I say that because it was so important for me to learn that as I grew in my life, that I had to be a human being and that I wasn't my business. Yeah. So, That's that great advice. In fact, I, I didn't have that in my notes, but as you mentioned that, as I'm thinking about our audience of family businesses predominantly, how do you do that? How do you keep that separate? I've, I've talked to athletes. I've talked to you know successful leaders and actors on the podcast and just in life uh, that are so tied to their identity of who they are and what they do for a living because that's how the public knows them but there's that private life that nobody knows how do you keep martha daniel there's a lot of martha daniels here there's the martha there's one which is what i love about you but there's martha daniel the business owner martha daniel the mom i've seen you in that role as well many times mm -hmm. even this week martha daniel the philanthropist martha daniel the preacher I mean, there's so yes. many different facets to you. How do you, not how do you keep it separate? That's not the question, but how do you stay consistent? And how do you, I guess the question is, as a business owner, let's go there first. How do you keep your identity as, as your individual separate from your identity as a business owner? Just to address those that are listening. Yeah, let's take that one because it, it took, first of all, it took some understanding that every person I met I did not have to do business with. Right. Okay. That was the first learning. And so the natural cause, you know, you meet someone, the first thing you, you know, they're talking to you and you're busy. I'm busy trying to think about, okay, how do I get business for the company? How that person is going to benefit me from that point. Once I began to release and net that person for that person, then I became the person. We're talking. I don't have to introduce the company again. I don't have to hand them a business card. Yeah. Right. So then I get to meet you as the person. And then we talk. Like, I know about your father. I know how much he meant to you. I know about your wife. I, I know, you know, I know a little bit about your life. Right. I had a chance to be, impart some, some exchanges that were were things that we do when we meet people that we want to meet and we want to grow to meet them and love them and, and have them a part of our life. So once I learned how to do that, and so as I move myself through the multiple things that I do in life, that's how I do it. I make sure I deal with that moment in time with me in that person and not selling my company. Yeah, okay. I love that. When we and have then a when I need to, I ask you, what I need to ask you for. Yeah. But I don't start out with that anymore. Yeah. And that was the learning of how to be able to be a person and not be my business. Yeah, one of my core values was taught to me by my dad, and you alluded to him a second ago, 
Um, and I've seen that in you and I've seen it in others too. And that is the very first core value that I, and I'm not great at this, but I try to, I, I'm making this effort every day. And that is to give value first. When I meet someone, I try to go to the space of what value do I provide for them as opposed to what value do they yeah. provide for me? And it's amazing when we approach life and relationships with that perspective in mind, how quickly I have, some, I'm sure you do too. I have so many friendships that we met and within a week, I felt like this person was my best friend because what we have in common is we're here for the other person, not for ourselves. That goes back to the, I don't have to give you my business card or I don't have to tell you what I am and read my resume to you. Let's just be friends and let's just interact and connect. Yeah, yeah that's really it, you know? And over time it happens. I don't have to do all of that anymore. Yeah. And I did, and I stopped it earlier and I learned how to do that. And so that's how you balance it. With my kids, I had to get to a point where you talk about raising kids because I raised my kids during the time that I had my business. I had to get to the point that they were just as important as any other business meeting. And I began to put them on the calendar. Oh, I love that. Because I to miss a baseball game or to miss a very important event, I didn't miss it in the business world. So they had to begin to get on the priority list mm -hmm. with everything else in life. And that was one of the things that I learned how to balance. And the things that are important to you, you place them on your calendar so you don't miss them. And that's what I began to do. I love that. I, I, I think of a, a gentleman, you and I both know Charles Antis, and I, I feel bad because I refer to him a lot. He is one of my closest friends. I was in a meeting with him the other night at his office with some other professionals. And, um, you know, about an hour or a little bit less than an hour before the meeting was to end, he's like, well, and, and he wasn't leading the meeting. He was meeting. He was part of it. He goes, well, I got to go. I got a little league practice to get to. <laughs> he's got little Charlie's little league on his calendar. I've got a I've got eight grandsons and one of them, two of them play little league baseball here close by, but I have their practices and their games on my calendar. Now, I'm right. going to pick all of them, but I'm going to know when they are so that right. when I can get there, I can get there. Right. So, right. So you, you talk about raising your kids as you're growing the business. Um, I've had the honor of getting to know your daughter, Maranya, pretty well, especially of late. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about when you, we're going to go family business here for a little bit. We're going all over the place. And listeners and, and viewers, I apologize. I jump everywhere because I just go where my mind takes me. And if you know me, <laughs> you know that about me. Um, talk about when you first saw the potential in her that she could not only potentially come into the business, but could eventually potentially take over the business. Because I know you're in those conversations now as well. Well, it's really interesting, Ed, because I, I wasn't the one who saw it first. Mm -hmm. My daughter was an attorney and um, had gone through law school, University of Chicago Law School, and she was practicing law in, in D.C., in, in New York. And so she made a decision in her life that she no, did not want to move the partner out. And had, after five years of working uh, for Morgan Lewis, she said, I don't think I want to do that for the rest of my life. And so she made a decision to go and work for the Department of Justice in DC. And my executive vice president, very close, she's been working with, we've been working together for 20 years now. 
at that time, my daughter has been in there for 13 now. I can't even believe she's been in business that long. But honestly, you know, we were discussing that the other day. I remember and, when it was brand new. Yeah. Right. And so this VP says to me, you need to hire your daughter. And I said, but what? She <laughs> said, no, about technology. She said, because she's smart. And one day you're going to look to lead this business and you haven't made a decision on how it's going to happen. And she's smart enough to bring in now. You couldn't match that New York salary that she made, but you certainly can match that, that D.C. salary she's going to bring her into the company. And I said, the typical, I didn't know many families go with, okay, another a family member coming in. I said, well, I'm not going to manage her. I said, I'm not going to manage her. She said, yeah, I will advice. She yeah. said, I will manage her. I will bring her in. So that's how, so I called her up and I said, you know, I know you're making this decision. I know you got an offer, but I, we would like to extend you an offer. And so she talked about it. She said, well, can I, because she's the employment labor law attorney, right? I need to write up my contract. And, <laughs> yeah, and, she, I need to be, enter the and she had a list of, I need to be trained. I don't know this. I don't know this. I want, I, so she came through this, which is what I expected her to do. That's why I said, I'm not going to manage her, right? Because right. I know her well enough to know that she's going to give me a long list of things that she needs to go in there. So we, she did. So that's when we decided. And so they, we put her in DC and she began, and, and, and the executive vice president put her into sales. And and here's a I've had several salespeople Ed that yeah. worked on DC office. Marunya sold twenty one million dollars in contracts within the first year and a half that she wow. was there. Okay, wow. so now you know why she's there. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah. She's not there because she's your daughter. She's okay. like well, she's the best person. This person who knew nothing about technology, yeah. and she sold this these massive contracts and relationships. And then uh, about two years later, the same VP says to me, it's time for her to come to back to California to be a corporate exec here. And I say, what is she going to do? Why do I want to take her out of selling? <laughs> Look what she's doing, right? <laughs> she said, we're going to replace her up there, but she needs to be your chief operating officer. You, you, you need to look at secession. And so when I think about mentor, I better think of talk about Brenda Taylor, who was definitely a mentor to me. You see how I'm right. talking about it now. This yeah. is mentoring. She looked at this situation and said, bring her in. We moved her to California and she didn't want to come to California. She said, oh, you know, I'm not coming back to California. I really don't like California. I'm never going to come back to California. Mm -hmm. So I said to Brenda, I said, well, she's not going to come back. She said, you can convince her. And I thought, okay, well, how do I do this yet? So I said, that night I went to bed, I prayed about it. And so I woke up the next morning and I called her in DC and I said, you know what, Marania? I know how you don't really want to come back to California, but let me leave this for you to think about. I say, if you don't come back to manage your inheritance, I'm going to have to hire somebody to do it. Mm. Why don't you think about that today like that. and tell yeah, me what awesome. you want to do? Yeah, you want to manage your inheritance? You want someone else to do it for you. I love so, awesome. so you got the story. You Now you know how she got back to California. Now I know what got her here. Yeah, that's right. I know Marania well enough to know that money isn't the motivator, but certainly the lack of money can certainly make us think about things, right? <laughs> that's awesome. That's good. So a lot of places we can go, and I can't interview you and talk about you without talking about your faith. It's come up many, many yeah. times already in this conversation. This is a professional podcast, but people who know me know that it comes up in almost every interview and not necessarily because of my own faith, certainly that's part of it, but 
And, and I think I just gravitate to people who have tremendous faith. And I'm not talking about people who are religious. I'm talking about people who just have a faith in spirituality. Take us through that journey of your faith. Obviously, I think your mom taught you at an early age. Oh, yeah. There was something in your home without a oh, yeah. Talk about how faith has been interwoven through the journey we've talked about thus far, childhood up to starting the business to where you are today and, and so forth. Yeah, all the way through. I mean, actually, you know, faith and in the South, you know, my mother, as I mentioned, you know, we, we were very, very spiritually living. Uh, uh, my, my whole life has been that. And, and as a young girl, when we talk about mentoring, I started teaching Sunday school probably around 9 or 10, 11, 12. I had been teaching a lot in my whole life. And and we never saw women as ministers anyway. So there was no aspiration ever to be that. I was just a a teacher. And and over the years, I became, in my mind, a great teacher because I had studied and I I could discuss and, and cross multiple denominational that where so much was caught up into that. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able to be able to branch myself across to that. So through the years, um, you know, God has been very, very part of my life. I pray, I know that um, that's important in everything. Even I end everything with the, the guts that says that, you know, you can't have greed, you can't be unilateral, you got to be trustworthy worthy and the S is for spirituality. You need to have a level of understanding that there is a superiority, a creator in this world that is governing. And so that's one of my my guiding stones. And so when I came into California over the years and, and throughout, I even went to Fuller Seminary for, for a while. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, enrolled in, uh, in the theology school. And so uh, in the AME church, the first time I saw, that was the first place I ever saw African Methodist Episcopal Church. That was the first time I ever saw a female minister. Yeah. I was like, wow. I went to Didn't the know church. that was a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at her and I didn't think it was for me. It certainly wasn't looking for it for me. Yeah. And over the years, I joined Christ Our Redeemer in Irvine, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 2003, they were on the campus of UCI. And uh, back then, uh, there was uh, uh, the pastor there, Mark Whitlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Mark Whitlock, who, who was the pastor there, would always look at me and say, what are you scared of? And I said, I'm not scared of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not afraid of anything. And he would say that to me, and I never understood. And then one day, I began to realize, and I, I journal every day. And I've been journaling for years. And I journal every day, okay? So so I had been journaling for about two years as I watched and I began to teach Bible study and began to grow there. And then uh, in my work, uh, it, who has time? I mean, in my mind, it's like there is never going to be a time I would ever going to be a minister. Right. And and I was journaling. I was getting my calling through my journaling. And as he would say that to me, I began to identify that this is what he said I'm afraid of. Because I'm saying, oh, no, there's no way. I'm not worthy. I'm not this. There's no way I can do this. It can never happen. And so anyway, underneath the AME Church, I decided to go into ministry. There's a five-year curriculum seven months out of a year you have to go through to be ordained as a minister in the AME church your first ordination is after three years your second is after two years there was no way in my mind running a business that I thought this would ever happen when I look back over it you know it did and uh, I was ordained as as uh, one of the first elders uh at Christ our Redeemer 
underneath this pastor and the second deacon level. And so been in ministry now for over 20 years. And my ministry is two things. is encouraging people that God is there. Secondly, women ministry I'm very strong on because women are very big in churches and I'm good at, at encouraging. And the second one is that because I, found that I lost my son, is a grief ministry for mothers who have lost a child. And because that is one of the hardest grief that, that I've seen mourn uh, in life. And um, that's a ministry that I am very strong in today because I lost my son. And so that ministry, any mother that I hear ever say, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm calling that mother because that is very strong ministry to me. So that's where I minister today. I preach every now and then, but yeah. but I'm not a pastor of a church, but I'm a supported minister. Yeah, and I've seen you there and I've, I've heard you and I've been to your church a few times and it's always been very inspiring for me to be able to be there and to meet Mark and to, you know, to see his influence on you and his influence now on me as well. I don't know him that well, but know him well enough that he has had an influence on me. How has the loss of your son made you a better person? That, that That's a good one because it took me through um, some challenges when I first lost him. Yeah. Um, the challenges were, um, you know, how can I be who I am and um, and and deal with the death of my son? And, and I have to share, my son committed suicide. Yeah. So that was even harder for me as a mother. Okay. How old was he? 28 years old. He was in college in um in, in Las Las Vegas. And um it took me for about a year to adopt in my mind and to handle the grief of that because as a mother, obviously. What did I do wrong? What happened here? What could I have done? Did I, I didn't, did I do all the things? I got the last call, which was a blessing to me because he called to tell me how much he loved me and, and spent time on the phone with me. And that same night after saying he would not ever hurt himself, he had, he was bipolar. So that was the little conditions there. And uh, I, 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 I couldn't process and so as a result of making me a better person, um, around the same time that my son had uh, committed suicide, Rick Warren's son committed suicide. Yeah, I'm familiar with that story. It was the yeah. very next weekend, the very right. next weekend. And as a minister, I was struggling. How could I be trying to save souls when I couldn't save my own child's soul? Right? Mm. So I had that burden and then as I went through that, I read, I kept reading, believe it or not, he don't know how he probably healed me. I would send him emails too, but um, whether he ever got them, I don't know, but he, the writings and the conversations he was having was helping me be able to, to uh, uh, understand that, that um, there was a reason for all of these things to happen. So as a better person, it makes me be more aligned to uh, children and understanding and brought knowledge to me to parent parents that may think behavior is an issue when it could be medical. Uh, it helps me with have mothers who are are giving up on their children, you know, yeah. because of certain things. So, so I think that from that perspective, it also shared with me that uh, my God is real, uh, despite what I may have gone through. That there were reasons behind 
what has happened. It makes me an advocate today uh, for the cause of dealing with children and adults that have some mental uh, you know, disabilities or incapacitations that they can't control. So I think that as a result, as a, a, you know, my giving back in the community, that's where I think the growth is. Yeah, we lost our pastor to suicide a few years ago at the church that we were attending. And Kay Warren, Rick's wife, came and spoke to our congregation not long after that. And and um, I'm going to pull the conversation back, but just that I, I remember that timing. So I can, I know what I felt as a person who lost a friend and a pastor. And I know what I heard Kay share about the loss of her son, what you shared about the loss of yours as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and honoring the memory. I would imagine that's a big part of it as well. You want to honor his life and his memory. And and uh, maybe, I don't know if that's normal or not, to want to maybe try to do some things that in his honor. Oh, not, yeah. not that he would have do done necessarily, but yeah, to honor him. Yeah. yeah. I give scholarships. We, at our court, at our church, we have a college scholarship fund. And um, I give scholar, scholars, uh, scholarship <laughs> funds for that. And then my grandkids, I have 13. Wow. Uh, I brag about eight with so, the ninth coming and you've already got, you've lapped me. That's awesome. <laughs> and so I'm very, very active in their lives. Yeah. Um, we, we are very active in their lives and, and helping them through college and helping them make decisions. So all of those things are where I could make, wherever I can influence earlier, I try to do so. Awesome. I love that. So I can't talk about, I can't talk with Martha without talking about the industry you're in. I mean, forget the challenges of being a woman, a black woman coming from the South, just the entrepreneurial success of starting this company. And now you've got contracts with the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, who does that? Talk about <laughs> how, I'd love to hear the story. How did you drum up the money to buy a business and how did you get it started and just the journey and how did you did you ever envision 30 plus years ago when you were starting this that you'd be doing contracts with the types of clients that you are today you know first of all i wasn't trying to be an entrepreneur i'm gonna be honest with that it, you're trying to feed the family <laughs> i was a cio at, at a bank and and uh this bank was going under and uh we were the we were the ones who had all of the junk money you can remember back in the 90s when they had that the the collapse of um yeah. of the savings and loan savings and loan crisis yeah and definitely. so i just happened to be at the right place at the right time and i think I, that's a god thing mm -hmm. and um and and the opportunity presented itself where i was the cio running something that nobody knew how to run and so as a result, I knew that the government had to take and do something with it. I heard that they had to go through a long litigation process and that they wanted to keep the bank open to run all of these applications, which made no sense. <laughs> and I figured that if I can go out and re rewrite these systems to a smaller operations, and then I started the company. I didn't have the money at the time to start, and I did approach a uh, partner that came into business with me. Uh, Tom Valentine, he was a 49% owner when I first started the company. And uh, and so we were in business together for about a year, year and a half. We just had different, again, it goes back to what I said. There's integrity, there's difference in character and there's partnerships. You know, I didn't know a lot about partnerships, but I learned, I was younger then. 
that 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 we needed to have cleared out some of the things that the way we wanted things to go. So I bought him out after a year, and I won uh, the first contract. That was interesting because. I work for IBM in the world, so I figured I could walk into anywhere and I could sell anything because that's what I did. Yeah. And so when you start your own business, it don't quite work like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. You don't carry the IBM name, you carry the, the IMRI name, which just look like this, and there's IBM like this. Yeah. And so um, so anyway, I went in and won my very first contract, and I was one of the first African-American businesses that won a multi-million dollar contract with Metropolitan Water District. I hit the government contracts and I shut down all of the 22 bail savings and loans and I supported the litigation support for the federal government for banking. And then Bank of America Security Pacific merged mm -hmm. and they shut down a lot and I became the shutdown banker. I mean, company that go yeah. in without transactions and get it done. So that's how we started growing uh, in the business. And from that, I was commercial. And then, of course, offshoring started to happen. I worked at Arco and a lot of the companies here in Orange County, New Century Mortgage Company. I had tons, and that's where the influence of Orange County was very, very big for me. But then they started offshoring things. And as they began to offshore, and I couldn't compete with those rates. So somebody said, you really need to be doing business with the government. But I had one or two little small government contracts, but you know, not really that big. And so I began to go through the government process and, and it's a tough one. A lot of people fall, go in it and they quit because it's difficult. The government is gigantic. And so I was very fortunate in there. And now I'm probably, today I'm more, IMRI is more of a 95% government contractor. And my, the other company, Cytelix Corporation, is primarily commercial. And so we um, getting into those different accounts and some of the opportunities uh, back in 2009 is when I entered, when we entered into cybersecurity. That's how long we've been working in cybersecurity. Wow. When, when, uh, when the uh, cyber, cyber command was established. And that's when we went in and we were working internationally and nationally uh, for uh, installing various different softwares in cyber. So been in cybersecurity for a long time. What is it about? And that's what, what the world is doing. <laughs> what is it about what IMRI and Cytelix each do? Um, I don't know if I asked that grammatically correct. What What do each of the companies do that puts you above and above, or that helps you win these contracts? When you walk in and talk to these companies, what are the, what's that unique selling proposition or that that um, je ne sais quoi, as they say? What's the thing that you do? that maybe where you win the, the deals over some of your competitors? Well, I am all right. When we first started in, in the government side, we supported the uh, a lot of the infrastructure more inside the data center. So today, whatever's done in a data center, we've done. We've supported the largest uh, organizations, just defense information system agents. You mentioned some of them. That's the backbone of IMRI. And as a result of working in there and getting into cyber early, I realized that there was going to be a need for small to medium-sized businesses were going to be so impacted. On the, if we're this big and we're so impacted, imagine what's going to happen as they realize that they can't get in up here, they're going to come in a different way. So I decided that I needed to develop a new company and develop a software solution. So Cytelix, on the other hand, is that software solution uh, company that provides 
uh, support to small to medium-sized businesses and helping them with the technologies. And we developed five, we've developed technologies. We have five approved patents on this technology uh, mm-hmm. that we have rolled out over the last three to four years. We support the Congressional Budget Office. We support over 150 small businesses today in helping them through the process where they don't have to worry about it. It's a subscription-based business. So that's the model that they have. And IMRI on the other end does large enterprise and the consultative side of that business. And so we use their tools and their solutions to be able to support the rollout in the larger entities. And then they also support a security operation that runs 24 by seven that we also use to support our customers. So that's kind of the difference in the two companies. Yeah. If our listeners and viewers want to reach you and learn more about Cytelex or IMRI, how do they get a hold of you? Or they want uh, to learn more about you. I just, I, I just go sit and have a cup of coffee with Martha and you're going to, well, not right now. During Lent, you told me before we recorded that you've given up coffee for 40 days. <laughs> how are you going to do that? But after Lent's over, how, if you want to have a cup of coffee with Martha or talk about your companies, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, actually, you can go out info at imri.com that's one way or you can go out and look up imri.com and or you can just google me and you'll get everything in the world about me martha daniel and you put it out there you get the companies and you get a contact and then that's one of the better ways to do so and then just contact my office and just say that use the buzzword say i would hurt you on it it heart and oh there you go your podcast and uh, therefore, my assistant is going to immediately call you back and we're going to work out whatever it is that you need. Well, you <laughs> That's been, the buzzword. You've <laughs> been a great, gracious <laughs> friend. You've been a, a friend and a, and a mentor and, uh, you know, just someone that I really admire when I see you out in the community or I see you at events and have had opportunities to, to, to be near you a lot, especially even this week. I've, I've had the privilege of, of being in the same room with you a couple of times this week. We'll also put the contact information in the notes for this show. Absolutely. We'll put your LinkedIn profile on there. That's another great way. It's a great tool for all of us to find people. We're up against the hour, and I want to respect the listener, the viewer, and especially your time. Um, but I, I can't finish the conversation without really what you've been sharing over the last hour. As you know, and first of all, before I finish, is there anything, I, I, I don't often ask this question, but there's so many places that we could have gone, and I feel like we've just touched on some. We're pro- probably going to have to have a part two, so just be prepared that <laughs> I'm going to be asking you when you get back uh, in the next, you know, from this vacation and, and down the road a little bit to, to do part two. Is there anything else that is on your mind or places that you serve? I guess the question I would ask before I wrap up is, as you choose to serve, and you've talked about that a little bit, I know you're on the board for the Orange County United Way as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, when you choose to serve, what is it that touches you and, and tells you that this is an area where you, where you should be giving some of your time, talent, and treasure? When I'm comfortable that I that it is that their mission makes a difference to people. That's uh, that. That is where the comfort zone. You know, I'm on the board of University of Vernon because I graduated from there. Mm-hmm. I know the culture of that university and how they impact. And for United Way, I know that everything that they do, and I've been involved with them for over 20 plus years, and um, everything that they do impacts this community, 
and it makes a difference. And uh, and I mean, one of the uh, a new new rollouts that we did about uh, two years ago called Cultures United, right. where I felt that we needed to bring all cultures together. Tam uh, mm -hmm. and Nian, Nian uh, yep. was one of my, he and I sat together, both of us share very compassionate understanding about humanity. We share that. And so we had this conversation. We started that organization. So those are the things that really make a difference for me to go out and um, be a part of where I know I'm going to make a difference and uh, where I can and where I know the mission is designed to do so. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny sharing that because I was just thinking about Tam. Tam's one of my closest friends and I've had him on the podcast multiple times and different, you know, <laughs> through Cultures United, through the the um, Stop Asian Hate initiative, through family yes. business, through COVID, you know, every morning for the first year plus during COVID, Tam and I, the first text message or phone call I got every day and he got, we were reaching out to each other. How can we impact? What can we do? And Just uh, good people. Yeah. Just he, he, like he's you. A wonderful just community. like you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I've, you. I've learned from a lot of great people, yourself <laughs> included, and Tam and many others that have that have inspired me and continue to do so. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, and there's probably a lot of people going, wait, you didn't follow up on this, or you didn't ask that. And I know there's a lot of stuff I missed. I get it. But I also <laughs> get that we're at an hour here. The name of my podcast is a play on my last name, Heart. Um, I had a blog of the same name from the heart for a number of years where I just wrote what came to my mind and came to my heart, interviewed people, um, wrote stories about people that inspire me. Now I have the opportunity with, with this microphone and with this podcast to, to talk to great people like yourself. And I'm going to finish, Martha, by just simply asking you the question, what's in your heart? Love, caring, and making a difference. 